If you have your Bibles this evening, you can turn with me in them to Amos chapter 1. Today we come into our exposition of the prophecy of Amos, and we find ourselves in a bit of an inverted position with the manner of many prophetic passages. I mentioned this just in passing last week, whereas usually the prophets focus themselves either upon Israel or upon Judah first and foremost, and then they uh, consider the nations that are round about them uh, after the fact. Uh, we see this particularly um, with uh, the major prophets uh, as we think of uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and such. In the book of Amos, we find that things are the other way around. Amos begins with God's righteous anger toward the nations that are around Israel. And then, in a sense, he kind of works his way in toward Israel, continuing from utterance to utterance. Now, when I say that, it's not a geographical thing. God did not start at the farthest geography and work his way in in that way. Uh, we are, however, moving nearer and nearer to God's prophetic target as we get from nation to nation, which, as we discussed in our book sermon, is in fact the northern kingdom of Israel that is the focal point of the prophecies of Amos. And as we talk through these prophecies against the nations, we are going to draw declarations. We're going to draw together the declarations that are given here with uh, various aspects of the history as best we know them, and in doing so, draw some important lessons. Uh, now, I intended to get all the way through the, the nations just this evening, but it's going to take two weeks. This week, I'm only going to get through the first of those nations through verse five, and then next week, we'll get all the way through uh, to the end of Judah in chapter two before moving on to Israel in the weeks that are to come. However, before we get into Syria, we talk through God's declaration to the nation of Syria, uh, we begin with an introduction. And I talked about that introduction last week. I'm going to give you a little bit more about that introduction this week. The text begins in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, when he, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we spoke last time to the basics of the prophecy which we are studying. It was written by Amos. Uh, he was a man who was a herdman of Tekoa. We talked about the fact that Amos is not a vocational prophet, but rather a, a shepherd, a herdman, a picker of, uh, of, of sycamore fruit. These were the things that he had been engaged in prior to the Lord calling him to leave Tekoa in the south in Judah and work his way north to Israel to give this prophecy. We also mentioned that thing that is truly unique about Amos, that he was from the nation of Judah but was sent to prophesy to the nation of Israel. As far as I can tell, he is the only prophet that crossed lines in such a way. Now, we do see with the bigger prophets, there were times where uh, they, they would speak to the kings of other nations or whatever the case may be. Certainly, we know that Jonah was sent from Israel to Nineveh, right? And we, we see those sorts of things. However, this is a unique one among the prophets, Amos was not sent to his own people, nor did God choose someone out of Israel to give this prophecy to Israel, But in this singular case, God rose up a prophet out of the south to go to the north and to preach judgment unto them. And make no mistake, this book is most certainly a book of judgment, as we'll learn throughout the weeks. 
We also see again in this verse that the prophecy took place in the days of Uzziah, the king of the south in Judah, and Jeroboam II in the north. We spoke of this last time, and I will not belabor the point, but it is essential for us to recognize, as I mentioned last time, that this was one of, if not the most prosperous time in the history of these kingdoms. That they were a time where they were wealthy, where they were at general peace, where they were dominant in their respective areas and lands. The people were wealthy, their borders were expanded, their military might was strong. We continue then in verse 2. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Now, in verse 2, we find the theme of the book. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And in this, we find it to be something of a companion to the prophecy of Joel. Now, Joel, as a prophetic book, is all about the day of the Lord. We haven't preached through Joel. I worked through quite a bit of Joel when I was in Revelation because Revelation uh, speaks much of Joel's chapter 2 And three, it speaks much of the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is an important concept that we need to understand when we are in prophecy in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And he splits this vision between the initiation of the last days in Pentecost, which we see in Joel 2, and then the consummation of the last days at the tribulation, which we see in Joel 3. But at the end of Joel, in Joel 3, verse 16, Joel said this, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now, what's fascinating about this comparison between Amos chapter one, verse two, where he says the Lord will roar out of Zion and from Jerusalem and Joel chapter three, verse 16, where where Joel says the same thing is that Joel's prophetic promise comes at the end of the vision, whereas Amos's comes right at the beginning. You say, well, pastor, that's not that big of a difference, right? But that signifies something. When Joel sees this vision of the Lord roaring out of Zion and from Jerusalem, notice what he sees in it. As, the, as, as this judgment happens, what does he say? He says, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. It's the first half of Joel that speaks primarily to judgment. The second half of Joel speaks primarily to redemption, to deliverance. And Joel 3 is certainly in the second half of Joel's prophecies. But notice in Amos... The same idea of the Lord roaring out of Zion, of the Lord roaring from Jerusalem. But these were his first words, not his last. And these words do not function to comfort the children of Israel in the day of judgment. Rather, they function to warn the children of Israel that God intends to unleash this judgment on them. We see also that Amos' prophecy is unique in perspective. In Joel 3, God promises that when Jehovah roars, the heavens and the earth shall shake. And this is very appropriate, related to the end times, 
This is very appropriate related to the day of the Lord, because in the day of the Lord, indeed, the heavens and the earth shall shake. And we're going to come to the day of the Lord in Amos as well. See, because the children of Israel in Amos's day were looking for the day of the Lord, and the Lord says through Amos, you may not want to actually be excited about the day of the Lord, because the day of the Lord will be darkness and not light. But in Joel 3, the promise here is that the heavens and the earth shall shake. And when the Lord judges the earth, indeed, the very foundations of the earth shall shake. But notice Amos chapter 1, verse 2. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Here when the Lord roars, what happens is much more local in scope. What does this tell us? This tells us that whereas Joel, when he says that the Lord will roar out of Zion and from Jerusalem, when he sees this thing, he is speaking much broader of the day of the Lord when the Lord returns and judges the earth. In Amos, we are much more temporal and local in scope. We're talking about Israel in that time. We're talking about the day of judgment. And this means that these two prophecies are not in contradiction one to another. But rather, the idea is this. There's coming a day where the Lord will roar out of Zion, where the day of the Lord is coming and he will redeem his people and he will deliver his people. But for today, Israel, you're in trouble. For today, Israel, it's time for rebuke. Now, it's speculated that Joel was written around the same time as Amos, most likely a little bit before Amos. Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. So, if nothing else, we would presume that Amos was well familiar with Joel's prophecy because Amos probably literally heard it in his actual ears. If this is the case, we might believe that not only Amos, but the people themselves likely would have been familiar with Joel's prophecies. We know that in the north, they were somewhat separated. They didn't have uh, the priests there because all the priests had worked their way down to Judah. And yet, it, it seems unlikely to me that in one way, shape, or form, the prophecies of the prophets did not find their way up into Israel. Maybe a little bit of speculation there. We might uh, understand with more confidence that Amos was familiar with Joel's words. And if this is indeed the case, then we do have a very interesting contrast here. Where the people hear Joel's prophecies, these prophecies of destruction which give way to deliverance, of God fighting for his land and for his people, of God roaring out of Zion as the hope and strength of Israel. And then Amos stands up and he says, yes, God will roar out of Zion against the nations that are round about you. And he even starts this prophecy by acknowledging as much. But what he says in verse 2 is that the thing that is going to wither is Mount Carmel. telling us that lesson that we understand from the New Testament and backfill into the Old Testament, that judgment must begin at the house of God. That when God promises judgment, judgment is coming. But when I think about the judgment that is coming to the wicked in this land, when I think about the judgment and it, it, it gives me comfort in the time of suffering or frustration, when I see things that are going bad all around me and I say the Lord will judge and I thank God for it, and yet we are reminded time and again in the New Testament and we are reminded in the Old Testament time and again as well that that judgment begins with God's own people. And so while I feel that comfort of the Lord judging the wicked, I must not allow that comfort to give way into self-righteousness 
because I know that I myself will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what I have done in my own body, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, as to the picture we find here directly, the image is one of destruction of prosperity. Israel was in a time of great prosperity, and as it related to that which took place west of the Jordan River, Carmel was the prototype for prosperity. This is the same Carmel where Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal in the days of Ahab. It was known to be an extremely fertile region, rich pastures, many gardens of fruits and of vines. It was a place that was, in, in that sense, the best that the western part of Israel had to offer. And on the eastern part, we see Gilead. We see the kine or the oxen of Bashan. We see that region of Bashan being that place of fertility. And Bashan is going to find its way into these prophecies as well. So fertile, in fact, was this region that Amos is joined by several other prophets in using the prosperity and the withering of Carmel as a direct sign of God's blessing and of God's judgment. Micah uses it in Micah chapter 7, verse 14. He says, feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the woods in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So we see Micah invoke both on the west side of Jordan, Carmel, and on the east side of Jordan, Gilead, as a way to express prosperity in the land of Israel. Nahum speaks of it in a judgment sense in Nahum chapter 1 verse 4, saying, He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. So we have Lebanon in the north, we have Bashan in the west, or excuse me, uh, Carmel in the west, uh, Gilead, uh, uh, Carmel in the west, Bashan in the east. There we go, Gilead is, Bashan's in Gilead. And in that we find that in every direction there is languishing, there is judgment. So that when God says here that Carmel shall wither, that the shepherd shall mourn, we are seeing here a statement, an unambiguous statement that God is, as it were, threatening the prosperity of the region if they will not repent of their wicked ways. And to this end, we don't necessarily see um, the idea here. It is not consistent to say that the reason why God is beginning his prophecy, speaking against all of the other nations, the Gentile nations, is so that God could kind of drop the hammer after the fact. Initially, when I was studying this, that's what I was thinking. God hits Syria, and then he hits the Philistines, and, and, and he hits Moab, and he hits Ammon, and he hits Amalek, and he hits all these people, specifically so that Israel says, yeah, get them, yeah, get them, yeah, get them. And then finally, God hits Israel themselves, and he spends four chapters on Israel, whereas he spent four verses on any of these other nations. But I don't think that's it. And the reason why I don't think that's it is because right here in Amos chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I'm judging Carmel. I am coming for you. And then he goes on to say, however, the other nations also will qualify for this judgment. So this prophecy in its early chapters is very localized. It will not be until the second half of the book, when Amos is finished with the direct prophecy to Israel, uh, that a Amos broadens the view and then begins to speak of the latter days. 
And in these early chapters, we are not learning of God's prophetic plan for his kingdom. We are not learning about God's prophetic plan for the day of the Lord. We are learning instead about God's indignation against his people for their sin against his name. We are learning about God's holy and his righteous character. But as I mentioned, though Amos has already said that Israel is the focus of this prophetic utterance and that Israel is in the crosshairs in that sense of God's wrath and of God's judgment, these utterances will not begin with Israel. Instead, he begins with the nations round about. And in doing so, though Israel has already heard that God is focusing on them, there is a measure of consolation or perhaps encouragement to the ear of the listener in Israel as they hear God proclaim this judgment against their enemies only to find that they are at the end of that list of God's indignation. So we continue as we read in verses 3 through 5. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron but I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kerr, saith the Lord. Now the prophecy begins with the nation of Syria. And this is the only one we're going to look at this evening because we will draw from Syria an application in our time together. Okay, the clock stopped. <laughs> I thought, oh no, I've already lost all my time. My apologies. Um, okay, I lost my train of thought here. But prophecy begins with the nation of Syria, Damascus, specifically the city of Damascus. And this will be common within each of the national declarations of judgment, that God will focus in upon their major cities and he will use those cities as a prototype or as a focal point for the entire nation and the region that is round about them. And for Syria, this was certainly their capital. We'll see with the Philistines four cities and we'll see in various other places uh, more than one city perhaps. But in, in Syria, it is absolutely the city of Damascus that God is focusing on. And with each statement of judgment, we find an identical formula of declaration that for three transgressions and for four, God will judge this nation. And this is not the only place where we see a formula of this type in the scriptures. It's the only place where we see a three and four formula, but we see in other places a six and one formula. Proverbs chapter six, verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And then it goes on to actually list seven things that the Lord hates. And so we see here a, a list that, that comes to, to, to seven and then lists seven things. Now, then we come to something like Job fifth, uh, excuse me, 5, verse 19. And there, 
The Bible says, he shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven, there shall no evil touch thee. I guess I, I should have probably added a few more verses to each of these so that you could see in the Proverbs 6 passage, you'll have to either take my word for it or you can just look it up now. But in the Proverbs 6 passage, seven iniquities or things that the Lord hates are listed. However, in Job, that is not the case. In Job, it says that he shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven, no evil shall touch thee. And then it does not list seven troubles. And so we find that this is a formulaic idea that brings the, idea, the, the, the concept to the number seven, a number that we know from Scripture is the number of perfection or completion, representing the idea of fulfillment in the Hebrew mind, going all the way back to God, creating the earth in six days and resting on the seventh so that a week is fulfilled in seven days. That number of seven has always been the divine number, the number of perfection or the number of completion. So that when the Hebrew mind speaks of something being in sevens, it might be literal or it might simply mean when things come to their fullness to their fruition or to their completion, this is the place. So God will deliver thee out of seven troubles. No evil shall touch thee in seven troubles. This idea is in every trouble, God will protect thee. Whereas, of course, in Proverbs chapter six, we see a literal God hates these seven things. Now, as we come back then into Damascus in Amos chapter one, three through five, we see here the idea not of six into seven, but of four, uh, excuse me, um, uh, three and then into four. And there's a couple of different ideas that we could take from this. If we choose to add them together, then we still come to seven. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. So that... We can think through this in that same formulaic seven transgression idea. Now, there is not going to be a single nation within these first couple of chapters that, where seven transgressions are listed. And so if it is this idea of seven transgressions for three and for four, then we're finding this formulaic use as a means by which for God to say, because you have filled up the cup of my wrath and you have brought your transgressions to the fullness in my eyes, I must now judge your nation. And we can be quite comfortable in assuming thus that what God is saying here is not necessarily that he is numbering their transgressions and when they hit the seventh transgression, he gets grumpy, but rather that the transgressions of each of these cities and nations has filled up the cup of his wrath and brought them to fullness, his wrath to fullness, therefore it overflows into judgment. But if you see three, four, or seven transgressions in these prophecies, if you, um, if, if you look in, and, and many commentaries have done this, they've looked for the seven transgressions of Syria in the scriptures and the seven transgressions or, or the three and the four. Uh, if you want to do that and you want to spend your time doing that, let's not split the church over it. That's fine. There might be seven. There might not be seven. Uh, if you find those seven, you come show me those seven. I'd be happy to read your, your, your study on that. And, and that's, um, that, that's well and good. I don't believe that that's what's happening here, though. I believe that this is speaking of the fullness of God's wrath working against each particular nation. Coming back then to Damascus, God says that he will not turn away their punishment. And that for this reason, that they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Now, once again, we see here a very regionally appropriate illusion. 
There is in the Bible a Mount Gilead. This is the place in the days of Gideon. There's a Mount Gilead. We also see a city of Gilead mentioned in Hosea, although perhaps not in the way that we would normally consider a city. But in the vast majority of cases where Gilead is mentioned in the scriptures, what Gilead is, is east of Jordan. It's the entire region that is east of Jordan. And particularly in this case, in Bashan, this would be the northeastern section of that area that is east of Jordan. And Amos says in verse 4 that the things that had happened that had made God so angry happened in the days of Hazael, who was a king in Syria. This was, in fact, the king who reigned in Syria during the days of Jeroboam II's father, a man named Jehu. Now, we said already that in the days of Jehu, Jehu claimed a great deal of territory back from Syria. But Hazael is not an insignificant king within the scope of biblical history. And I want to give you a little bit of that extra history. And then I want to take that history and I want to use that to help us think through some applications in our time, the remaining time that we have this evening. If you recall, both Jehu and Hazael had a very important role in prophecy. In the days of Elijah, when he had had that great victory against Ahab on Mount Carmel, and then after that great victory, when he had slain the 400 prophets of Baal, and Ahab's wicked wife Jezebel threatens him and says uh, that, that she is going to destroy him, she's going to kill him, and then he flees, and he flees down to Horeb. And he is very, very discouraged. And God has to encourage him. And he tells him that there are, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he whispers to him in that still small voice. Do you recall what else God commissioned him to do there in 1 Kings 19? He picked Elijah back up on his feet and he said, go anoint three men. Anoint Hazael, king of Syria. Anoint Jehu to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha to be the next prophet. So Jehu, everything that Elijah said, everything that, that, that was anointed, uh, that, that Elijah went to anoint on that day came to pass. Jehu destroyed the house of Omri and became king in Israel. Hazael became the king in Syria, a king which actually was well acquainted with the prophet of God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. He did not just get to meet Elijah. He got to meet Elisha in person as well. And then finally, of course, Elijah goes and he anoints Elisha to be his successor. And what I'd like us to do next then is to consider to zoom in on Hazael. And the interaction that took place between Hazael, who is not yet the king of Syria, and Elisha. So Elijah, we don't get the account of Elijah going and, and anointing these men, per se. But what we do get is a day when Hazael interacted with Elisha in the final days of Hazael's king, Ben-Hadad. So we read this in 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go, 
Meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. It's a lot of stuff. And came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hadzael said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children, and rip up their women with child. And Hadzael said, But what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldst surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hadzael reigned in his stead. So here we have an account of Ben-Hadad dying, sick, This is one of several Ben-Hadads that we find in Scripture. That might be because Ben-Hadad, like uh, many of the other titles that we find, was a title itself. Or it could just be that it was a lineage of kings. Generally speaking in history, this Ben-Hadad is distinguished as Ben-Hadad II. Hadzael was a high officer in Ben-Hadad's court and is sent to Elisha to inquire whether he would recover from this sickness. Elijah's answer was that, yes, he could recover, and indeed he would recover if he was allowed to recover. But though he could recover, he would still surely die. And at this point, the Bible says that, the, the count, that Elisha stared at, at, at Hazael until Hazael was ashamed. And then the man of God began to weep. He did not weep for the king of Syria. He wept because as he was standing there, the Lord was showing him what was about to happen. That Hadzael was about to take control over Syria and that when he did so, he would become a brutal, brutal tormentor of the innocent people of Israel. Not the armies of Israel, but the children, the pregnant women, ripping them into pieces, dashing them against rocks. That kind of wickedness, that kind of brutality against the innocent people against the civilians, if you will, take our term today, of Israel. So Elijah responded that he knew what would happen next, that Hazael would do these terrible things. And Hazael states with horror about what he was hearing. He says, am I a dog that I would do such things? And then he proceeded to do them nonetheless. So that we read as we continue. 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. 
And Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel from Jordan eastward in all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites from Eror, which is by the river of Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan, neither, uh, uh, skipping here, excuse me, uh, now to 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 7, neither did he leave of the, of the people to Jehoahaz, but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them, and he had made them like the dust by threshing. And in this passage, we see even that same idea of threshing, that idea that we find in Amos chapter 1, verse 4, verse 5, that God, uh, that, that, that Hazael threshed the people with threshing of iron, with instruments of iron. The end of verse 3, excuse me. Now, there is debate about what this means, but it does seem to be an illusion that as it was that when one would harvest, they would thresh with iron and it would cut down the crop, that in the same way Hadzael took the swords and the chariots of the day and cut down the people in a brutal and merciless way. So God says that the palaces of Ben-Hadad, presumably the palaces that were built in the days of Hadzael's predecessor, and also the house of Hadzael itself, would be devoured with fire. That the bar of Damascus, the idea of the bars in a city would be its gates. So the gates of the city would be burned and torn down. And the city itself would be burned with fire. Something that we'll see again and again and again. The picture of a, of, of a city being burned with fire was not just that, uh, that somebody accidentally started a fire and it, it lit the whole place on a, a, a light. But rather that they will be conquered and they will be utterly Conquered So much so that, that their walls are breached and that there's so much domination of their people and of their region that the city is literally burned to the ground. It is not even left up. It is not assimilated into another culture. It is not assimilated into another nation. It is utterly destroyed. And he says, and all those who inhabit the plains round about the city. Now in this case, he says, I will cut off the inhabitants from the plain of Avon. Most likely, this is not the actual name of one of the plains around the city of Damascus. The word Avon in Hebrew is a word that means idolatry or vanity. And so most likely what was being spoken of here is uh, the idea of a place of vanity or a place of idolatry. The same word Avon is actually given to Bethel. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, where Hosea calls Bethel Avon because it was the place of idolatry in Israel. And so the plain of idolatry was most likely the place where they went and they sacrificed to their gods, maybe burnt their children in the fire, all of the things that they would otherwise do. More of a description than a name. And then he says that him that holdeth the scepter in the house of Eden would also be destroyed. Once again, whether or not this is a literal place or it's speaking of the idea of a place of paradise, a place of beauty, um, the house of Eden is literally the name Beth Eden. Maybe it was a city of some importance. Some believe that that was the case, although we do not have the record of Beth Eden in Syria. Others believe it speaks of the fact that the original Garden of Eden was in that area. Can't prove that one way or another. And then some believe that the area was just so beautiful, it was such the pinnacle of the region that it was called Eden. 
One way or another, though, the princes of the house of Eden, the gates of the city of Damascus, the people and the inhabitants of the plains of idolatry would all be utterly destroyed. The message is this clear. Both the leaders and the people would be overcome. And finally, Amos tells them from whence that destruction would come. That they would go into captivity unto Ker. Ker was a river to the east. And on the banks of that river at this general time in history, the might of the Assyrian Empire was growing. And indeed, it would be this great empire, the Assyrian Empire, that would eventually push out and would consume just about every nation in this region, with the exception of Judah, who would hold out until the days that the Assyrian Empire saw themselves toppled by the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as we step into our thoughts of application this evening, then, I've given you a lot of history from, our, from the scriptures. But what I'd like to think on tonight, and the reason why I didn't want to move any further, is because I want to think about Hazael. I want to think about what he was told by Elisha in the darkness, about the darkness of his own heart. And particularly about Hazael's response. On the day that Elisha saw what was going to happen through that king, as Hazael stood before the prophet and he honored his own king, Ben-Hadad, and as he lowered himself before the prophet and sought his wisdom on this matter, he responds with revulsion at the idea that he would become what Elisha said he was going to become. And there's two possible reasons why he responded that way. The first is that perhaps he was playing a part, right? Which is why Elisha stared at him until he was ashamed. That Elisha knew what was happening in his mind, and Hazael knew what was happening in his mind, but he was playing a part regarding his plans to overthrow and to conquer Syria and then eventually Israel. But there's another possibility as well that when Hazael responded with said revulsion, he was actually and genuinely unaware of the depravity of his own heart and his own capacity to do wickedly. It was quite clear that the Syrians were well aware of the power and authority of the prophet. We see that in the days of Naaman. Perhaps through Naaman that the, the, the broader awareness was understood. We see Ben-Hadad seeking unto the prophet. We see Hazael recognizing the power of the prophet. And it is quite possible that in this day, Hazael just did not even realize the depth of his own depravity. Either of these is uh, plausible. And the reason why I know that either of these is plausible is because I've experienced both of them in my own heart. It's because I've had both of them. I've not killed women and children, don't get me wrong here. But in my own heart, I have had both these things happen. First, where I have in my heart a determination to do wrong, but played the part of obedience and submission. I've done that before. And also, I've been in a place where I genuinely did not think I was capable of committing such a sin. I, I could handle it. I was in control. 
I knew myself well enough to know that that's not going to be a problem for me, that that's not going to be a temptation for me. I can handle it. And I read the word of God and it says, protect yourself and guard yourself and separate yourself. And I say, yeah, that guy needs that, but not me. I'll be fine. And I've ended up in a place I did not want to be because I was unwilling to remember, to regard that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Of the first idea, that I have in my heart a determination to do wrong, that there is within me a stubbornness. We talked a little bit this morning about the idea of being willing to listen about the idea that it is my will that stands between me and God's blessings. It is my will that stands between me and what the Lord might desire to do in my life. It is my will that stands between me and usableness because it's certainly not God. How often would he gather us as a hen gathers her chickens? But we would not. And yet there are times where I am determined to be stubborn. Where God can have any part of my heart except that closet right there. God, you can't have that closet. That is mine. That is my area. That is my determination. That is the thing that I will not give you. That is the thing that I will not let go. I want this one. I will take this one. I will not forgive that person. I will not obey that person. I will not submit to that person. I will not regard that authority. I will not yield that dream that I've always had. I will not place that thing on the altar. It is mine and you can't have it. And when I am confronted with the truths of God's righteousness and expectation, there are times where I will play the part of the hypocrite. And I will sing the songs of consecration on a Sunday when I'm singing the hymns. And I will speak the words of consecration and yieldedness when I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. But in my heart, there is a stronghold that is not there because I'm struggling with it. It is there because I'm bolstering it, because I have built it, because I have fortified that place in my heart that the word of God, that the commands of God, that the righteousness of God cannot touch. And there is but one solution for this problem, and that is repentance in the fear of God. That we would understand the words of Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Regarding the authority and respecting the judgment of God of heaven is not the only motivation that a person has to do good things. There are any number of ways that I can attempt to manipulate my flesh into doing good things for one reason or another on the basis of some other motivation of perception or of advantage. I want to please my parents. I want to please my church. But the fact of the matter is when there is that stronghold in our hearts and we are playing the hypocrite, we are pretending to be something that we are not. We have in our heart an unyielded area. The reason why it is there is because we lack a proper, properly adjusted fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the fundamental motivation for us to get right. And the reason why that is the fundamental motivation is because on the day of judgment, on this earth, let's start there, we find ourselves in a place where there's very little by way of 
institutional accountability. Even as it relates to your own sin. If great sins were to be found in my life or your life, and there was to be a great confrontation, it would be unpleasant. But as we've said oftentimes before in a bit of a fit of frustration, any one of you could walk out of here because you have been caught, found out, and go across the street to any one of the other 15 churches in Buffalo and start over again. The fear of your pastor or the fear of your parents or the fear of uh, this particular community or society doesn't necessarily hold ultimate sway. It may hold some. But at the end of the day, the thing that compels me to root out the strongholds in my heart is not the fear of my pastor. It is not the fear of my parents. It is not the fear of my spouse. It must be the fear of the Lord because there's coming a day when we will all stand before him in judgment and on that day you do not answer to me, you do not answer to your husband or to your wife or to your parents or to your siblings or to your pastor or to your church. You answer to God. And this is the God who knows your heart. So that if Hadzael on that day was a man who was playing a part, who was a man who was playing the hypocrite, the man who was pretending to honor his king, the man who was pretending to honor the prophet, he got a little glimpse in Elisha who had a connection to God by which Elisha could see into and pierce into both his heart and to his future. He had a little glimpse of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. A little glimpse of the fact that though he was able to hide it from everyone else, he could not hide it from the one person that mattered, the true and living God. If you sit under the sound of my voice today and you are comfortable in your hypocrisy, you're happy to play the part, to pretend that you are something that you are not, whatever it be, pacify your parents, please your pastor, Put on a good front for the kids or for the church. Well, that's your choice. But you need to know that the God who sees all and knows all is watching and that one day you will give an account. So perhaps it was that Hadzael did what he did because he was playing the part. Seems like the text would imply that on the basis of the way Elisha responded to how he responded to Elisha when Elisha kind of stared at him. But now I speak to those on the other end. Maybe it was that Hazael had no intention toward the things that would transpire beginning the next day, but you know. Maybe particularly the things that would transpire when Elisha's weeping as he sees the people, the men, the women, the children of Israel being cut and dashed and ravaged by Hadzael's armies. And maybe in his heart was that idea of, well, yeah, I'm going to take the kingdom. Yeah, I'm going to kill the king. But I would never do that. Maybe as you said under the sound of my voice today, you're kind of in that place with some sin. Well, yeah. I mean, there are sins that I commit, but never that sin. No way that sin. I could never get to that place in my life. I could never be duped by the devil's lies in that area to falter or to fail. 
Look at that person who's struggling so much. Why can't they get it together? Sure, there's struggles in this life, but that struggle. Why can't they just get over it? Why can't they just get past it? How could they be so blind? How could they be so foolish? A few months ago, we memorized a verse at Legacy Baptist Church, which was also in Proverbs, like the verse we've memorized this month. Proverbs 22, verse 3. Do you remember it? I'm not going to ask you to say it with me. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, to be sober and be vigilant for our adversary, the devil walketh about seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't say be paranoid. It doesn't say be terrified. But it does say be sober and vigilant. I'm not calling for us this evening to be so afraid of ourselves to be so paranoid of ourselves that we lock ourselves in a room, go find a monastery somewhere so that we, we, we can't be confronted by the world that is around us. I'm not saying that. But God forbid that we would not fool ourselves into thinking that we are above the capacity for Satan to deceive, to confuse, or to fool God forbid that you or I would fool ourselves into thinking that we are something that we are not. And when we do, when we get it in our mind that that could never happen to me, that's a little thing called pride. It may not feel like pride to us. It's not the normal way that pride is necessarily always manifest. It may not look like pride in the normal sense of the word, but it's pride. A failure to understand the weakness of my own flesh and my own capacities when I step outside of abiding in Christ. It's a failure to regard the strength of our great enemy, the one who as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And it's a failure to heed the warnings of the wisdom of God's word. Of this warning, we're in Proverbs 16 for our memory verse this month. Verse 32, a little bit earlier in Proverbs 16, the Bible says this. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding rather than to be chosen, uh, excuse me, and to, to, and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He that keepeth his way preserveth his soul. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And may we take this warning to heart, Christian. May we be prudent, not paranoid, prudent, placing into our lives the proper protections to avoid evil and to cling to good. And these verses have told us why. Because God will bring every work into judgment. Because the simple are the ones who pass on and are punished. Because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Syrian king Hadzael stood before Elisha and he watched Elisha weep over the death that he saw of women and of children in Israel. 
And something was going through Hazael's mind on that day. Was it hypocrisy? Knowing what he thirsted to do in Israel? Pretending as though that wasn't the case? Or was it that he simply underestimated the depravity of his own heart? I don't know. But either way, this is the interesting thing. Either way, the consequences were the same. Elisha confronts him. Hadzael goes and he does these things. And now here we are in Amos chapter 1. Hadzael has done what Elisha said he would do. He has dashed the children. He has ripped apart the women with child. He has committed these atrocities. And now here we are, and Amos is standing in Israel, crying out the judgments of the Lord, and the first man on his list is Hadzael. And the first reason on his list is because he has destroyed the children of Israel, because he has threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. So that the haughty spirit with which he stepped into his actions are now about to meet the great fall that God promises comes to those who persist in sin. Because whether Hazael attempted to fool Elisha or attempted to fool himself, he failed to follow the warning of the Lord. He failed to heed the word of the Lord. And now in Amos, we find that he is about to reap the consequences of his sin. And that is our warning for today. For regardless of how it is that we persist in our sin, whether it's because we're attempting to fool others in hypocrisy or whether it's where we are fooling ourselves through, through allowing ourselves to fall into this pride or this deceit of our own deceitful hearts, the fact of the matter is we cannot avoid the sowing and reaping principle. That what we plant is what is going to grow. And if either through ignorance or through self-deception or through hypocrisy, I plant into my life sin, I will reap what I have sown. And if we sow to the flesh, regardless of motivation, whether hypocritical determination to sin or as a simple one who is void of understanding, who falls to the predations of my own heart of the devil, we will reap corruption. So let us in these early verses of Amos gain some perspective through the example of Hazael's life. We don't necessarily get a lot of Hazael in Amos itself. But as we compare Scripture with Scripture, this is what we find. That all that Hazael sowed into his life through the disregard of the prophet is now about to be reaped in the judgment of God against his nation. And may we not be numbered among those like Hadzael, but rather be numbered among the prudent, among those who preserve their soul by keeping God's way. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.